As we look out into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Don't know what happened. Freeman Dyson little quote there that will become relevant as we move through the show. On this day, Matt, March mm-hmm. 29th, 1974, what was happening? Mariner 10. What? The first Mercury flyby at 703 kilometers and it's the last of the mariner spacecraft can i get and a yeehaw you can get a yeehaw because the, it's very fortuitous this because it was the first spacecraft to encounter two planets at close range it's the first spacecraft to get a really good close-up fo- a photograph of mercury and it took another 33 years before we got another one would you say it was showing off it was but the, the, the really important one was the secondary objective after in after having a look at Mercury's environment, etc., and having a look at Venus, the second objective was to do a gravity assist mission. Ooh. Now, gravity assist is our space word of the week. It is. This We're week. gonna go deep, aren't we? On gravity assist. We're gonna go super deep because I've also got Dr. David Kipping. Oh, Kippers. Uh, yeah, Kippers of the of Halo Drive fame. Now interviewed. You, you were absolutely buzzed, buzzed yeah. about the interview, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't and wait I didn't, to hear it. I didn't even realise he was English until I phoned him up and heard that pleasant English tone. Give me a f- keys, you f- <laughs> that tone. Yeah, that one. Just joking. It was Ben Kingsley in <laughs> what's that for? Sexy Beast. <laughs> Sexy Beast, yeah. He was like that. Oh Very like that. Incredible. Well, I, I for one, am going to be excited to listen to that. Amazing. Guess who else was born today? On You're not going to tell March 29th. me. March 29th. It was WAO, are you? It is Bill Urfenlainis, whose only mission to space was to pilot STS-116, the space Aye. shuttle. That's quite good, isn't it? He's a test pilot instructor. And then it's like, yeah, I'll fly the shuttle. What of it? Boom. I love that. You've also got on today, 1931, was Alexei Alexandrovich Gubarov flew on Soyuz 17 and Soyuz 28. It was a while ago now. Fantastic. One of my favourites, and this is semi-relevant, is uh, 1941 Joseph Hooten Taylor Jr. That's quite a name. It is, isn't it? And he, he was discoverer, with along with his colleague Russell Allen Hulls, of the first binary pulsar. And that opened up the whole science of gravitational radiation and was the first indirect evidence of the existence of gravitational waves. Well, Matt, if I'm known for anything, mm-hmm. aside from my Cuban heels, it's that it's for my love of binary pulsars. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely you should do because over a 30-year period... Taylor and his colleagues made measurements that match Einstein's prediction 
to way better than 1%. And that prediction was that uh, general relativity suggests that a binary system should start slowly shrinking because of the loss of energy as it emits these gravitational waves, yeah, this gravitational radiation. Taylor was able to prove that, and it's one of the greatest proofs of Einstein's general relativity. Imagine nailing that. Yeah, it's his birthday today. Happy birthday. It's, unsurprisingly, he won the Nobel Prize for it. Joseph Well, he should Houghton. win the Nobel Prize just for, for, his, the, just for, his for name. the middle name Hooton, if I'm honest. Uh, Matt, what's happening, uh, what's happening in the Vega launch world? Vega launch, yes. Well, Vega launched Prisma at the end of last week. We just missed it on the podcast. Uh -huh. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting launch, that. It's got this Italian-made satellite of super, super high-end... Uh, spectral, spectral or hyperspectral precursor of the application mission. Right. Or Prisma. And obviously this hyperspectral camera that's on board, this payload, is really, really useful if you want to, uh, for Earth observation, because you can start to, um, it's, you're able to to break down the light so you can see what type of crops there are and you can see pollution and all those kind of things. So this is the next generation of kind of Earth observation satellites. And so I think that I thought that was quite interesting. Well, good luck to everyone. Good good luck to uh yeah, good luck to the Italian team who built Prisma. And uh, good luck also to Electron who are launching R3D2 for the Americans. Oh, I see what they did there. And Jamie, 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 did you see the 4K Falcon 9 video? I may have seen it many, many times. It's amazing. It's really cool, isn't it? 4K. I mean, I mean, come on. 4K, yes. If only I had a 4K television, although it's perfectly acceptable in That's the, the only normal. reason I got mine, so you can come round to my house. Oh, yes. Have you got 4K? Matt, not only have I got 4K, I'm rocking an OLED. Oh, We're talking yes, individual pixel lighting. <laughs> what? Well, I'm coming round, I'm coming round, although I might buy an 8K TV now. I know you've got a 4K one. <laughs> 8K, nah, it just doesn't cut it. It's all about four. <laughs> je, je, you know, for the last three or four podcasts, we've been going on and on about this all-female spacewalk coming up. Yeah. It's only gone on being cancelled. I was really annoyed about this. I mean, who who didn't sort this out? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I think it... Do you know what? I think it's just one of those things. Apparently, so the, as far as I can tell, and I did get a little bit confused by this story, but Anne McLean, it was supposed to be Anne McLean and Christina Cook, as someone, one yes. of our spodcats pointed out. Thank you for that, um, listener. Uh, yes. Uh, f uh, but it turned out that when Anne McLean was using her EVA suit, it, she decided that she preferred the medium-sized hard upper torso, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that there's only four spacesuits on the space station at the moment, and two of them are medium, but one of them, it just isn't ready for a spacewalk. So um, they weren't planning on using the medium one for McLean, but now they know the medium one for McLean is right. Of course, they've decided her going out in the larger one is unnecessarily dangerous. Because spacewalks are really dangerous, you know. There's mm. there's micrometeoroids and and all those kind of things that can hit you, and and it's very very strenuous work. You know, this is this isn't for the lighthearted, uh, and so unfortunately, yeah, that they, they um, the perfect person to do that spacewalk is is Cook, 
And so she's getting the medium space suit and Nick Hague is going to wear the larger one. There we go. I mean, these things do happen. I understand it. I'm just disappointed, I think. It's that. disappointing, but they it was never it was never supposed to be a thing. It was like coincidental. And I yeah. think it it was Kate Rubins or someone like that who sort of spotted it and went, Oh look, this will have we have we ever done one yeah, of these before? Be where two women? Yeah. And it's like I don't know. And they look back and went, No, no, we haven't. So it wasn't like it was planned to be this great sort of thing and it's certainly not how the press have portrayed it it's something that you you want to appreciate in its in its historic moment but it's not like you're trying to make it happen because of that reason they just happen to be two amazing astronauts exactly and it'd be good if if it was to the point where you never even mentioned it Exactly. Which is the point that the selectors were thinking when they were actually choosing the astronauts to do it. They weren't they weren't thinking about male, female. They're just thinking about who's the best astronaut. Here, yeah. here. One of the but one of the great facts that I spotted in Eric Berger's write up of this was uh, which I just didn't realise, and we really should have mentioned this on our spacesuit special, was that these EVA spacesuits that they have on the International Space Station, they were designed in nineteen seventy four. And they were all first, the first flown in 1981, and there was 18 spacesuits produced, right? Mm. Only 11 of them remain in service, of which four of them are on the ISS. So these are really old bits of tech that they, that they sort of recycle all the time. So the, these suits, they stay on the space station for six years, or, oh, six, I was going to say, or, how long do they stay on yeah, there yeah. for? Get updated. They go, they, they go up and down and they're serviced on the ground after six years on the station or 25 EVAs, whichever comes first, hmm. which I just didn't I didn't know or, or hadn't really thought about. But yeah, so there was a lot of criticism about the spacesuit that was supposed to replace it because that's not ready and hasn't been developed yet, and yet it's cost tons of money. I was going to say, the spacesuits cost a fortune, don't they? <laughs> yeah, well, to, uh, to develop a, yeah, to develop the next generation that's not ready yet was something like eighty million dollars, mm. and it's and it's not done yet. So that's pretty freaking crazy, isn't it? Well, I can't see. I can't wait till we see the SpaceX Daft Punk ones. <laughs> oh yes, no, absolutely. Well, Drink. yeah, but as we said before, they're they're IVAs rather than your EVAs, aren't they? Those true, ones. true, Dan. Yeah. Jamie, do you wanna do you wanna hear my space word of the week? Let's space dive into word it. Of the week. It's gravity assist Ooh. in recognition of our guest and Mariner Ten. So yeah, gravitational assist. What is a gravitational assist? Do you know, Jamie? Can you give me a give me a little bit of a rundown? Uh, well, isn't it a swing by gravity of a planet or other astronomical objects to alter the path and speed of a spacecraft? Typically to save propellant and reduce expense. So is in a nutshell, Matt, is that the... Uh, in a nutshell, yes. So a gravity assistance is is used to accelerate the spacecraft. So you can you can increase or decrease the speed. So, um, and basically a lot of people think it's the gravity of the, of the object itself that's doing the speeding up. So mm. it, as Voyager, for example, approached Jupiter, that somehow Jupiter pulls the spacecraft towards it and you use that speed. That's not quite right because obviously as the spacecraft moves away from the object, it's doing the opposite effect. It's pulling mm. it back. So that's not it. What it's doing is stealing a little bit of the speed of jupiter as it's going around the sun so obviously jupiter's got a lot of of speed 
as it's going around the sun. It's that you're kind of stealing a little bit. And I'll give you like a really rough analogy of that is if imagine you're standing on a railway platform and you throw a tennis ball against a stationary train, right? right. And you throw the ball at say 10 miles an hour and it and it will come back at you at 10 miles an hour if it's a like a you know really ace rubber ball or thereabouts you know if it was perfectly yeah. a perfect rubber ball it would come back at the same speed now say if the train was coming at you at 40 miles an hour as you chuck that ball at the train right the driver would see it coming at him at 50 miles an hour and he would see it bouncing off the front of the train at 50 miles an hour as well so the so now the ball is actually going 90 miles an hour but that's back at you because you've stolen some of that uh some of that momentum off the train and obviously the train has slowed down ever so slightly but imperceptibly because the mass of the train is so much greater than yeah. the mass of the uh, of the rubber ball but that's roughly it that's roughly the wow. same sort of thing that you're doing when you're stealing a little bit of this momentum off please don't throw tennis balls at trains though yeah don't, yeah don't do that because obviously it's quite frightening for the poor old um yeah poor old uh, uh train driver we don't want to be held liable we've got no public liability insurance yet have we matt no absolutely not so yeah, it was first used, this gravity assist manoeuvre was first used by the Soviet probe Luna 3, which photographed the far, far side of the Earth's moon. And we've talked about that on a previous podcast, but also Mariner 10. Happy birthday, Mariner 10. Happy um, birthday. Yeah, so, uh, there's, so here's the notable gravity assist, Luna 3, Mariner 10, Voyager 1 and uh -huh. 2. Galileo, Ulysses, Messenger, Cassini used one, Rosetta used one, Juno, of course, used one. And and now, at the, currently, at the moment, we've got the Parker Solar Probe and Bepi Colombo have all used oh, yes. solar assist. Bepi's uh, on there. Uh, 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 sorry, gravity assists. Um, and that's mainly, mainly to – those last two is to slow down, in actual fact, because when you, when you sort of go into the inner planets uh, towards the inner part of the solar system um, – you accelerate towards the, the because of the sun's gravity, and so even though Mercury's traveling a lot faster than Earth, you're actually going really, really fast by the time you get there. So you've got mm. to shed some of that speed off, and the way you do that is to use gravity assist to get rid of some of your speed because it would take far too much propellant. That so, makes sense. So the most famous one, of course, was the Voyager missions that happened. It would just so happened for their grand tour of the solar system that the planets were lined up in such a way that these gravity assists meant that you could go and visit each planet one by one uh, on minimum fuel. And that's not going to happen for centuries, apparently, ever again. And it was, a, of course, famously an intern that spotted this this really brilliant i never knew uh, that That's yeah awesome. yeah yeah he, he was the one that spotted this brilliant gravity assist path that you could take and went oh you should see this and everyone whoa we better hurry up and build some spacecraft to take genius uh, to take to take this on good work now, uh, do you know who originally noticed um this thing about gravity assist the first person to kind of mention it Oh, wait, it wasn't Yuri, was it? <laughs> Yuri Vasilievich Kondratyuk. It's not even his real name. We go his way real... back. Yeah, his real name is Alexander 
uh, Shulgai, and he's a Ukrainian engineer and mathematician um, and visionary. Apparently, his books are absolutely incredible. Not only did he was the first person to mention gravity assists way back in 1938. In fact, he, he came up with it in 1918, apparently, um, as he was talking about spacecraft traveling to planets and using uh, the moons of those planets to slow down, um, mm. which is incredible. Uh, he had a paper called How to Build an Interplanetary Rocket. That's way yeah, that's, back in the day. That's pretty amazing. Uh, we, 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 we should the day. do it. We should, we should definitely do a special on this guy because he also did lunar orbit rendezvous, which oh, was one of the which is one of the key concepts for the Apollo landings. Ooh. So yeah, so he's he's really important and he's someone that no one ever really talks about. So yeah, gravity assist isn't that really really cool? I just love the fact that Good work. as as these as Voyager went past say Jupiter. It slowed Jupiter down ever so slightly. <laughs> I just think that that's... Sorry, that's, Jupes. Sorry, Jupiter. But we shall be talking more about a really novel gravity assist with uh, our guest this week. And Coming Halo up. Drive. Coming up soon. So, Jamie, what was the piece of space news that tickled your fancy well, this week? I clicked onto the BBC site the other day and I, had to, I did a bit of a double take, Matt. Because mm-hmm. it said India shoots down satellite, and I thought, "Hello, I- I'm assuming that they're not doing this as an aggressor." Um, although it seems like a very aggressive move, um, <laughs> but but they're uh, they want to put their stamp on uh, on their power, Matt. You know, and and uh, the yeah, Prime Minister Narendra Modi said in a television speech um, that they're demonstrating the ability to destroy satellites as a move. Uh, that he claims shows the country stands tall as a space power. I mean, what do you take from this, Matt? Well, obviously, to be able to shoot down a satellite, as we know, they're going really, really fast. <laughs> and very it, far away. I mean, this is, this, is, this is hugely difficult. And isn't it only China and Russia and USA America, who have the yeah. cap- capability? So they'll be the fourth superpower that can do this. It's obviously a massive display of skill and ingenuity. And in India, it's gone down really, really well. It hasn't gone down so well with the rest of the world, of course. No. I mean, one of the main problems is space debris. But unlike China's, the one that China did was up at 800 kilometres high, which is why I've put this little table in um, where if you're up at 800 kilometres, it takes about a hundred, well, over a hundred years for your orbit to decay. So, thanks, China. Basically, they push, just put tons of debris up into up at that height, hmm. and actually higher because the 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 missile came from below the satellite and pushed it all up even higher. Right. So you've got this really bad debris field now that will stay up there for hundreds of years, whereas this Indian version was Microsat R, which was okay. orbiting at about 270 kilometers. Now, if you look at that table, 270 kilometers means it's going to only take about a month for it to all decay away, which is pretty good news. So I suppose it's been it was definitely more responsible than the ridiculous Chinese uh, one, which, yes. which almost seems unforgivable. Because oh, it, do, it it does seem like now that there is a Kessler uh, uh, already happening. 
Hmm. But it, it takes a lot longer than people think. That the the scenes in Gravity are just totally ludicrous. Kessler, the Kessler effect takes many decades to actually happen, rather than the few hours that it happens in Gravity. So it's it's right. all a little bit ludicrous. But yeah, I mean, obviously they've got elections coming up, haven't they? So uh, Prime Minister Modi, he's um, showing off to try and get some um, kudos, and of course it's it's going to work. Which I think actually is very similar to the space news that I wanted to talk about, which was, of course, the one that everyone was very excited to see was Mike Pence saying that uh, NASA was going to return humans to the surface of the moon by 2024. Ah, what a surprise. So (laughs) what do you think, Matt? Has this got anything to do with China's now uh, uh, thoughts on going back to the moon? Do you know? Well, yes, it does, and obviously, America don't want to be beaten to the punch by China, but China aren't going to have boots on the moon until the twenty thirties. I do, I wouldn't have thought. Right. So they they already had a target, which I thought was overly ambitious at twenty twenty eight, but twenty twenty four just almost seems like a complete ludicrous statement, uh, and. <laughs> so NASA had basically set the goal of 11 years after Trump had ordered them to do so. So Trump said, right, you've got to return men to the, to the moon. And that was in 2017. So we, it was 2028, right? And uh, Pence said, ladies and gentlemen, that's just not good enough. <laughs> so, and, and he also, he said lots of other, he said lots of other things like by any means necessary to get humans mm. to the South Pole. So, I think any means necessary, and he was sort of saying, you know, if contractors were failing to deliver, they would just swap to other ones. So this is much more of a veiled kind of message to say, right, everyone, get your asses in gear. This needs to happen. However, you know, Bridenstine, after that announcement of, say, using commercial rockets, has gone back on that and said, oh, no, we're working now to get SLS and Orion working. They're, they're, yeah. they're, we're rejecting the commercial alternatives. Yeah. And uh, so it's all about that. So it's kind of really mixed messages, isn't it? I mean, It really is. I, 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 mean, it's up I, I just and down. don't get it. And, well, I just don't I, – I don't think that Pence is in the best position to understand how long stuff takes. No. What do you reckon? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, let's have it. Like we let's... can't get on the moon uh, for for uh, definitely not for the next few years. Like, I don't care. Make I don't... it happen. No, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like I'll just ignore. Well, let's face it. Pence has got a uh, a record of ignoring scientists. For example. Pence does not accept the scientific consensus that human activity is the primary driver of climate change. Pence has voted repeatedly against energy efficient and renewable energy. I mean, what the hell? Why would you vote against energy efficiency? Yeah, and yeah, definitely one that wants to screw up the Paris Agreement. Absolute Uh, bellends. However, Matt... No, he doesn't believe in evolution, Jamie. What? He doesn't... Believe in evolution. Quote, I also believe that someday scientists will come to see that the only theory of intelligent design provides a remotely rational explanation for the known universe. For f- uh, oh, so, God. So, so, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have the ability of critical thought. This guy is worse than Trump. I actually, I would be terrified if Trump was assassinated. 
got, I've, got, I've got a few quotes that, oh, that, God. That, that I think are quite funny. Well, God knows we need some humour now. So the first, the first one's from David Parker, who's the director of human and robotic exploration at ESA. And he mm-hmm. said, he, he held up a poster of the SLS chart with the 2028 date on it. And he said, this is NASA's architecture for getting to the moon. When I woke up this morning, maybe it's evolved over the course of the day. <laughs> it's like uh, Elon Musk was a little bit more uh, kind of um, flattering. He said it would be so inspiring for humanity to see humanity return to the moon, uh, but it would be great to have a competitive commercial program to build a moon base that is outcome orientated, not cost plus. Dig at the old guard, so you only yeah. get paid for safe delivery of cargo. There we go. Perfect. No, I, I like quite, that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of criticism from your people like Coalition of Deep Space that basically pointed out, well, it's okay making bold plans, but you need bold resources in order to carry them out. Uh, And there's other considerations. Where they're going is the South Pole because there's supposed to be water ice there. But Jack Burns of University Colorado said, before we put boots on the ground at the poles, we urgently need robotic water ice prospecting missions. Uh, So... That's got to happen really before you go and send a bunch of astronauts. So yeah, because you've got to yeah. do you've got to be doing this for the right reasons, not just hey, we landed on the moon again. Mm. What are we going to do now? Uh, did I play golf? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I'd believe it more if Pence and Bridenstine had said, right, we're cancelling SLS and the money we were spending on SLS, we're going to pump into the private sector. Yeah, uh, well, that's what I was going to say. Is then that maybe the, you'd the, have a chance. Yeah, well, the time and money that they're going to be spending to now try and do this in time for 2024, it makes you worry about what they're going to have to drop and cut. Uh, well, you know what it's going to be. Look, I've just told you about Pence and his climate change denial. Uh, so if he guts out the earth science part of NASA, that would be absolutely horrific. And if you think what this is all about, this is just returning Americans to the moon just that they can, just for Trump to sort of finish yeah. finishing glory. Now, one of our spodcats put it just about as good as I think you can put it. He wrote in today and said, from the plodding jobs program with a glorious mission to nowhere, we are now presented with the goal of a hysterical dash for the glory of the worst mother <laughs> president in the US history so he can preen at the end of his inevitable second term. Oh God! Let's hope not. Oh wow! What a quote. Who was that? Who sent that in? I'm not going to say his name because I, I, it's it's one of our favourites. But whoever you are, thank you. He might get into trouble. He comes up with a very nice uh, thought experiment as well as a kind of coda to that bit of darkness. He says, "The thought experiment I keep running in my head is: what if NASA said, right, you're guaranteed the same money each year plus inflation." got a clean sheet just do the program that would interest you with the current workforce but decent leadership and he says if they would if that was to happen even those even the alabama um senator shelby would be proud of the result oh let's see i just oh god damn it's just every time i go back to that administration i cringe how long yeah. is it gonna last yeah don't start talking about a second term please don't let that happen yeah, well, I talk a couple of couple of things as well. Even if they increase the budget, it's not going to make the timeline any faster. Everyone knows that 
from, from Can't any, just throw money any, at a space yeah, situation. Any, any, any late running project is not made faster by money, ever. No. Um, there's a classic quote of, if we double the resources, we'll be able to finish it in twice the time. <laughs> so which is essentially with the situation that they're in at the moment so i'd mm. i call bullshit on this on this thing it's great yeah. it's it's the classic just make a statement make everyone happy all the electric go away with happy feelings of yeah we're going to the moon in 2024 yeah yeah and then they'll forget about it but it won't have happened and and nothing will be lost it's in the minds of the forgetful it's, it's <sighs> terrible Oh, it really is. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh. Well, you know, Zubrin's Moon Direct is there. Maybe maybe scrap SLS and just do that. That's your chance. Anyway, Jamie. There we go. Yeah. Shall we, shall we just go, let's, shall we go on to happier times and listen to the interview that I did this earlier today? Let's turn our frowns upside, upside down. <laughs> Here we go. Here is Mr. Kipping. Roll the tape. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined by Dr. David Kipping from Columbia University. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. Before we go off into today's topic, can you just uh, give the listeners some kind of background of where you're from and how you've got to where you are today? Uh, sure, I'll try and keep it brief. Could be a long story. Um, in, a, in a nutshell, I uh, grew up in the UK, uh, hence the accent, and uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Cambridge University in Natural Sciences and Physics. And then I moved to University College London for my PhD. And then I uh, switched over to Harvard after that for my postdoc years before finally becoming a faculty member now at Columbia University, where I teach astronomy, astrophysics with a specialization on exoplanets. Very, very interesting indeed. That's uh, kind of how I wish my life had gone. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, one of the reasons why I got you on the show, because there's been quite a lot of excitement about uh, the Halo Drive. It's one of those things where one of the listeners of the show quite excitedly was uh, sending messages over to me. And then I saw it on a few other websites and I've heard about it on a few other podcasts since. But it's obviously causing quite a stir. So, the Halo Drive, can you give us a little bit of an introduction about how that works and what it is? Yeah, sure. Um, It's a concept for um, accelerating spacecraft to relativistic speeds, which means speeds which are a meaningful fraction of the speed of light, um, essentially without expending any fuel on board the spacecraft. Um, And the way this works is that you need, if you want to really accelerate to relativistic speeds, you actually require colossal, astronomical levels of energy to do so. So the whole premise behind the helio drive is, hey, maybe uh, trying to generate that level of energy here on Earth is, uh, if you do the calculations, it's actually somewhat infeasible, even with our current technology. But maybe we could borrow or steal that astronomical level of energy from an astronomical object, which has plenty of energy. And in this case, the, the suitable candidate is a black hole. So the way this works is uh, it's essentially sort of a, a, a riff off the famous gravitational slingshot, which I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of. We do this in the solar system all the time. Our Voyager probes, the New Horizon probe did this just you know, in the last few years. You fly past a massive body, 
And as you fly past, you can kind of steal some of the kinetic energy, you do a slingshot past the planet. Now, if you want to do this around a black hole, the reason why you might choose a black hole, by the way, is because these things can exist in these very tight binaries um, where the speeds of the uh, black holes can be indeed approaching the speed of light. Um, that actually inspired Freeman Dyson uh, in the 60s to start thinking about this idea of sending a spacecraft to loop around, gravitational slingshot around a neutron star or a black hole in exactly this configuration. But the big problem with the Dyson slingshot, as it's often called, is that you are throwing your spacecraft into a fairly hellish environment. Yes. It's, 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 you're swinging straight past you know, a very dangerous object with extreme tidal forces. There could be a hazardous radiation environment. And of course, your timing has to be just right uh, to not avoid basically, I mean, it's like you know, trying to throw a marble into a, into a blender and not hit any of the blades. It's, mm. it's kind of difficult maneuver to attempt. So and the, the halo drive kind of gets around this and it says, well, maybe we could perform the slingshot without having to endanger our spacecraft by using light. And this idea was kind of inspired by thinking about what breakthrough star shot, which again, I suspect many of you, your listeners have heard of before, the idea to propel spacecraft using laser beams, you know, to hmm. push them along with giant lasers here on Earth. But what if we did the same around a black hole? So we have our spaceship, it's in a, let's say, a fairly wide orbit, but in the same system as this, as this binary black hole. And we fire a laser beam at the black hole, at one of these two black holes, at just the right moment when one of those black holes is approaching us. And rather than firing the laser beam straight at the black hole, which of course would just cause the light to fall into the black hole, light can't escape a black hole, um, instead of doing that, we fire it just to the side. And there's actually a special angle you can choose known as the boomerang geodesic. And if you do this, light bends it just sort of skirts, skims the event horizon and loops right back to you. And if that happens, then the light is essentially behaving like a mirror with black holes in such a case. Now, if you have a moving mirror, uh, I mean, a, a good analogy to this is to sort of think about a moving wall. If you had a wall that's moving towards you and you throw a, a ping pong ball against it, it will come back, it will bounce off the wall faster than it left. It, that, that's essentially the, the, the logic behind even a vanilla uh, gravitational uh, slingshot. It's the same same principle, just basically seeing momentum off the moving object during this bounce. In the same way, the light wants to do that, but it can't see up. Light is bound to always move at the speed of light, according to Einstein. That, that was going to be my question, was <laughs> how do you make light go faster than the speed of light? So... Yeah, that, that's the bit that I'm struggling to get my head around. Yeah, it, it, can't, it can't do that. So actually what happens is the, the light gains energy using the only way it can, which is to blue shift. And this is, this is kind of like what would happen if you, you can kind of imagine this with waves. If you have a sound wave that bounced off a wall that's moving towards you, the sound wave would also come back at a higher pitch. In a very it's very analogous to a Doppler shift, just in a simple sort of ambulance driving down the street with a siren coming towards you. If the sound waves are getting this extra boost in velocity because it's coming off a moving object, then the pitch changes. And the same thing happens to the light here. The light increases in pitch, increases in frequency, and thus becomes bluer from our perspective. So 
Altogether, then, what's happened, if we just sort of look at the full picture, you fired a beam of light, and actually when you fired the beam of light, that act in itself pushed you in the opposite direction. And that's just, of course, because of, uh, as Newton taught us, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. And even light carries momentum. It doesn't have mass, but it does carry momentum, as uh, Einstein showed in 1905. So you get a slight pushback in the opposite direction when you fire your laser beam, the laser beam then loops around the black hole and becomes bluer as a result of this process. And then finally it comes back to you and strikes your spacecraft again. And when that happens, you get a second push. So it's kind of a, a, an elegant system here because not only did you get back the light that you put in, you accelerated your spacecraft and you actually got more energy out than you put in because the, the, the light beam comes back with more energy. So you can essentially charge up your battery on board the spacecraft. And that, that's kind of the principle behind the halo drive is to accelerate essentially for free from your perspective. Um, although you are stealing energy from the black hole, this is still net, net energy is zero altogether. But from your perspective, you're essentially just harvesting energy from the black hole and using, using it to accelerate. I've got uh, yeah I've got a couple of questions so obviously with a normal uh, gravitational slingshot or gravitational assist uh when the spacecraft goes past uh Venus say uh Venus actually slows down somewhat and I, I presume that that's related to the mass of the satellite and the energy that it's then given it but but photons whizzing round they have they've they've got no mass so so how, how does that affect the black hole? I mean, presumably the, the black hole is losing energy, but how is it losing energy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, this, even though you're right, photons do not carry mass, the important thing is not whether they carry mass, it's whether they carry momentum. And uh, they do indeed carry momentum. As long as it has momentum, it's going to influence and cause a recoil effect on the object which it bounces off, or in this case, loops around, in the case of the black hole. Um, so if this black hole is moving towards you, um, then you can really think of it, in a, a really good analogy again, is just imagine bouncing a ping pong ball off this black hole that's moving towards you, you will slightly slow down the black hole, and that will actually cause the binary orbit to shrink a little bit. And essentially what you're doing is you're, you're causing the black hole to merge at a slightly quicker rate than it would do if, if you weren't there, if you weren't doing this. Mm. Vice versa, you can actually do the opposite. Um, this is you know, what I've described so far as a process for acceleration. But you can also decelerate using the exact same logic, except you use the opposite point in time. So now you fire a laser beam at, uh, instead of the black hole which is coming towards you, the black hole which is moving away from you. And in that case, you're actually uh, taking energy from the spacecraft and dumping it into the black hole binary itself. So you're doing the opposite process there. And then you would actually cause the binary orbit to expand. So you can actually see here that this is kind of like optical tweezers. You have essentially a means, an advanced civilization certainly could exploit this, to manipulate the architecture and configuration of binary black holes using just beams of light. Well, I suppose that neatly gets us on to the second part of the paper that I was reading that, that does explore how you could use this technology or the knowledge of this technology for signatures of extraterrestrial life. So I'm assuming that's what you're talking about there. Yeah, um, obviously we can't really do this halo drive thing tomorrow. This is not something that we're going to be using. 
um, when I was working on this paper, what I really had in mind was sort of the activity of an advanced civilization. And I, indeed, that's what Freeman Dyson really had in mind when he wrote his original paper about the idea of the so-called Dyson slingshot. Um, so in that sense, yes, I, I suppose in principle, it's some, the technology exists for us to do this today. It really is just a laser and a mirror. I mean, we, we essentially have that technology already since the 1970s. But of course, there's this big uh, catch that you need uh, a black hole. And thus, you were, you're going to need the means to travel to that nearest black hole. And as we might imagine, um, that's going to take a little bit of development in satellite flight to get to that point. Um, I think, and I just want to point out, and a sort of a concern people often raise at this point, well, okay, if you have the ability to fly to uh, you know, the nearest star or the nearest subset of stars where you might find one of these binary black holes, then why, why do you even need the halo drive in the first place? And I think that's kind of like um, asking, okay, if you can, um, uh, this is a one-time fee, right? Once I, once I get to that nearest binary black hole, yes, it costs me a lot of energy to get to that point, but I never have to pay any energy again to travel across the galaxy. I can essentially accelerate and decelerate between these uh, binary black holes um, without really using any fuel at all on board my spacecraft. And yeah. So, that civilization might use this system as a sort of an intergalactic highway system to, to move across the galaxy. Even potentially very large masses, planet mass objects could be accelerated and decelerated. Um, as long as the mass of the spacecraft is much less than the mass of the black hole, it really doesn't matter what the, what the mass of the accelerated object is. So that kind of raises some interesting possibilities of thinking about if there is this network out there, um, that, you know, obviously there's an economic value for a civilization to exploit this because they don't have to pay anything to keep moving huge masses around the galaxy. Um, why, uh, why, how would we detect such a civilization? Like, what would be the direct um, observational evidence that we might see? In our own galaxy, say the Milky Way, how many of these black hole binary systems are there? Are they common? That's a great question. We're, I mean, that's something we're only really just starting to get a, a handle on. There's sort of two ways you can approach this problem. One is somewhat from a theoretical perspective, and one is from an observational perspective as well. Oh. So the, the theoretical perspective would say, okay, look at the uh, number of sun-like stars, look at the, the, in our neighborhood, we can count those up, look at the number of smaller stars, and look at the number of larger stars. And we can see those stars, and black holes are the products of the most massive stars, which eventually die. And most of those stars are actually so massive that they're very short-lived and we can't see them anymore. So you sort of have to do this calculation. What you find is that it's almost like um, uh, maybe like a, a bag of nuts or something. There, there tends to be more of the small nuts than there does of the big nuts. That the, the bigger the star, the rarer they are. And so what we do is we extrapolate sort of the, the counts of the small stars, the medium-sized stars, the large stars. We extrapolate that rate to calculate how many black holes we expect to be in our Milky Way galaxy. And you get a number of something like 100 million of these binary black holes which should be residing. So that, that sounds like a huge number, but it's actually a relatively small fraction, of course. There's 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And there's a factor of a thousand less of that, of these binary black holes. So they're less than one in a thousand type systems. So they're relatively rare, um, but there's enough of them certainly to present a, um, a highway system, if you like, across the 
uh, Milky Way galaxy. Um, there's another aspect we can maybe talk about if we have time, and that's um, the idea that you, you can actually probably also use the halo drive without a binary black hole, but probably even just with an isolated spinning black hole as well. And that, that, that further increases the, um, the network, of course, that you could exploit. And could, could you do it with smaller mass objects like binary neutron stars, is, or, or, or do you just not get enough kick from that? You can't use the halo system in that case, and that's just because the light will not bend enough to come back to you, which is um, really an important premise and requirement right. for this system. Where you need the astronomical object to behave like a mirror. And you could imagine you know, painting a planet to be silver or something and creating a mirror that way. Um, but you know, generally in nature, such objects do not exist. If you want an astronomical mirror, a neutron star just doesn't cut it. It bends light a lot, but not enough to do a complete 180. Right. If you want to achieve a 180, it really has to be a black hole. Right, that's really interesting. So with, with something like uh, von Neumann probes, <laughs> uh, presumably this kind of system would mean that they could they could explore the galaxy even quicker than predicted, which kind of leads back to this Fermi paradox thing. Is it, has anyone discussed that element of it, of, well, if people are able to use these, you know, that we, we keep discovering more and more of these ways that we can maybe explore the galaxy mm -hmm. or, interga or intergalactic space, but we still don't see any spacefaring nations. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it might actually make... Um it might actually remove some pressure on the, the fact we don't see these civilizations because the place where these civilizations are likely to reside are black holes. And you know, we really struggle to detect black holes by virtue of their black nature. <laughs> they are you know, unobservable to light, essentially, apart from a slight distortion of background stars. Um, now, thanks to LIGO and other gravitational wave detectors such as LISA that might come online in the future, we are starting to gain the ability to, to hear, essentially, the ripples in space-time caused as these black holes orbit one another. So over the, you know, the future years, I expect we'll start to build a map of the galactic population of these black holes. Um, another way of doing that is, is also microlensing as these hmm. black holes distant stars. So over the future, we should gain that map. But if you think about what this advanced civilization would be doing with this network, um, each of those binary black holes or spinning black holes, they represent waypoint stations. And, you know, certainly in the history of our own civilization, waypoint stations tend to be hubs of trade. Um, and so it kind of makes more sense to put your civilization around those points. Um, not only because of the halo drive, there's, there's a, actually a considerable literature of work now, which has been arguing there's numerous methods by which an advanced civilization could exploit and harvest energy from black holes. One is to harvest, of course, like the Hawking radiation, which is coming off black holes. Um, that provides a means of essentially just throwing mass into the black hole and converting it into pure energy. Um, you can also do this with the jets, which come off a black hole as well. So that's kind of an amazing object. It's almost like they're, they're replicated from Star Trek in reverse. You can take mass, any kind of mass, garbage and convert it to pure energy. Um, the other useful uh, exploit of, binary, of, of black holes, and spinning black holes in particular, is something called the Penrose process, where you can um, essentially harvest the spin energy of the spinning black hole 
um, to power your civilization. So there's, there's plenty of ideas out there about how black holes could be the ultimate power stations for um, civilizations, and I guess the Hinodrive is another example of that, more focused on the case of propulsion. But here you have another reason why perhaps the civilizations don't live around stuff anymore. Perhaps they migrate and live around these more exotic objects. Is there a method of spotting civilizations around these black holes? Is there is there a, a techno signature, as it were, that they would be leaving? Yeah, I guess it, I guess uh, that's uh, a super open question at the moment. <laughs> most of the most of the signature work has focused on stars like our own sun, what what it would look like if civilizations were doing uh, industry and building large megastructures. You've probably heard of the Dyson sphere as an example of that. There are, there is some work and the consequences of you know, building new structures around black holes as well. But it's definitely less well studied, I would say. And certainly, you know, black holes, we don't even know where they are. So they haven't really been a target for SETI in the past for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, in the case of the halo drive, um, it's difficult to have a techno signature because the system is by design extremely efficient. And if you think about it, any advanced civilization is going to want to be <laughs> extremely efficient because they're using such vast amounts of energy. They don't want to be leaking energy all over the place and broadcasting their presence and, of course, just wasting useful energy. So advanced civilizations are, by design, always going to be, I think, quite challenging to detect unless they're just extremely uh, wasteful about their presence. Um, in the case of the halo drive, probably the only signature that is unavoidable, I think, would be the merger of the black hole, of the two black holes around one another. Every time you use these black holes to accelerate, as I mentioned earlier, you can steal some energy from the, from the pair and thus cause them to merge at a slightly elevated rate than they would otherwise. On top of that, you distort the orbit. The orbit most likely would have circularized by this point. It should be too, you know, just a perfect circular orbit. But every time you go off in a preferred direction, um, you're going to actually distort the shape of the orbit into more of an ellipse. So you might be able to detect that the um, in the in-spiral moments that LIGO and things are detecting, um, you might be able to detect that the orbit must have been eccentric in order to explain the gravitational wave signature. And that would be unexpected, I think. Generally, it's kind of surprising to have a large population of highly eccentric black holes at this point. One, one bit that I just want to go back to, because I've suddenly realised that in my head I haven't quite got this sorted. You've got, the, you've got these two black holes uh, spinning around each other. And, it, and it's, it's that actual spin where they're up at these near light speed, well, very, very fast speeds. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in the uh, case we've mostly been focused on, um, it's not really the spin of the black hole which is relevant. It's, it's simply, um, that's what we a spinning black hole is called a curved black hole. You have to mm. use something called metric to explain it. This is really the more simple case of a simple Schwarzschild black hole, which means it has no spin and it has no charge. Um, According to the, the, the famous no-hair theorem, you can completely describe a black hole with just three parameters. It's mass, it's spin, and it's charge. And if it's not spinning, it doesn't have any charge, then it's just, it's literally just mass completely describes it, and that's the Schwarzschild black hole. And that's what we have here. We have a Schwarzschild black hole, except that there are two of them, and they're orbiting around one another, and it is the kinetic energy of the orbit, if you like, mm. which we are leveraging here to power our halo drive. Um, you can also consider 
uh, isolated spinning black hole, that's the Kerr black hole case. And in that case, the physics is a bit different. What you're doing is you're using frame dragging. So these black holes have such ridiculous gravitational fields, they literally warp and bend space around with them as they spin, they twist space-time. And thus, as a light beam sort of approaches it, it's kind of like jumping on a merry-go-round for a short amount of time. Was was anyone else involved in your in, in this study? Did you even get to speak to Freeman Dyson himself? I have met Freeman before. Um, I sent him a, a preprint of the paper, sort of an early draft, and uh, he, he really liked it. So, um, I mean, which is, I guess, not surprising because he's heavily involved in the Breakthrough Starshot project, which is the idea of using lasers just to you know, accelerate spacecraft. And he is, of course, the um, founder of this Dyson Slingshot idea. This is really a, a fusion of those two ideas. I mean, it's often said that there's no such thing as a truly original thought or a truly original idea. It's merely the combination of you know, different uh, ideas out there already in the literature in unique and different ways, uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I think this is kind of an example of that. Like, I'm not going to claim this is like some kind of super original concept because um, this is uh, just really taking existing known physics and just combining it together in a slightly novel way. I think the reason why it's caused a lot of excitement is is that that novel way is is <laughs> it does feel like a, a a really clever idea. So yeah, it's it's it's. It's really interesting, and uh, and it's obviously it's it's got some applications, even though that's a long, long way away. I mean, talking about how far away it is, what kind of uh, leaps in technology would we have to have to be able to exploit something like this? Well, we need to be able to reach the uh, nearest binary black hole. Um, that first requires having a map of where they are. Um, so that's hopefully work that's actually happening right now, as I said. With detectors such as LIGO. Um, and then the second thing is you need to be able to, of course, actually travel to that destination. Um, that is a, that's always going to be a very expensive enterprise. I guess the attraction here is that once, you've, once you can accomplish that, once you can get to your nearest black hole, you can pretty much get to anywhere in the galaxy you want after that point. Um, without, and in fact, keep going back and forth without expending any further energy. But there is this one-time fee of having to, first of all, build a spacecraft which can get to the nearest star system. Breakthrough Starshot is obviously one uh, possible avenue that might one day be able to accomplish this with some form of that approach. Um, and of course, there's other ideas such as you know, maybe a nuclear fusion um, drive on board the spacecraft, um, or sort of ion drive technology. So this is obviously kind of really pushing the limit of what uh, of, our, of our knowledge at the moment as to how to do this. But um, I'm certainly excited. We've actually some other ideas here in our group about how to do this. So um, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but uh, we, <laughs> we, kind of, we, think we, have, we think we have an interesting new approach that we're um, working on right now. So you have to stay tuned for that one. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look out for that. I mean, what, what sort of space, what sized craft do you have to to get out to that system to start the ball rolling? Um, I'm not sure there's any any hard limit on the size of the spacecraft. Um, the lighter your spacecraft, the less energy it takes to accelerate it. It takes about um, 12, uh, let's see, about, yeah, about 10 to the 12 joules of energy, so that's about a terajoule. 
of energy to accelerate a ground mass spacecraft. Um, so that is sort of the amount of energy produced by a nuclear power plant operating for days on end. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge amount of energy. Whereas if you want to um, accelerate, I mean, that's just a ground mass spacecraft, actually, the size of a microchip. If you want to accelerate something like the space shuttle, then it would take um, something like a nuclear power plant 100,000 years in continuous operation to generate enough energy into, yeah, and then somehow you have to store that energy in some kind of giant battery of some kind. Yeah. Goodness knows how that. And then you expend all of that energy and, and fire some kind of giant laser onto your space shuttle and accelerate it away. So uh, just from the fact, the way I'm describing this, I think it's kind of self-evident that there are many technical challenges. <laughs> this is a formidable problem. Yeah. But it's, um, it's maybe, you know, who said that interstellar travel was supposed to be easy? This is probably a problem that is supposed to challenge us and supposed to push us to the edges of our creativity and imagination. And uh, I think that the more different ways we can attack this problem, the more people that start thinking about this problem seriously, thinking about the physics which might enable us to do this, then um, the greater our chance of success. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a really good place to end thanks for thanks very much and uh, yes as, as soon as you've come out with uh, presumably it's another paper uh, about your ideas of how you approach the problems we were talking about then please yeah. let me know and we'll try and get you back on again yeah great well thank you so much and thank you for having me on your podcast the interplanetary podcast is alive well matt i can see why you were so pumped about that interview it's yep. so great yeah it's, it's cool isn't it super cool I've, I've, uh, yeah, trying to get my head round um, red photons turning into blue photons as they speed up round a black hole. It's quite, it's, it's. Well, uh, call me after the podcast and I'll explain it to you. Okay, thank you, thank you, Jamie. Uh, the song "Across the Universe" by the Beatles, Lego minifigures of Galileo and the Roman uh, deities Jupiter and Juno, a sound mm. recording of a-, a kiss between a mother and child, Luke Sky- Skywalker's lightsaber, a prop from 1983 went up in 2007 with discovery sts120 did you know any of this matt no i didn't know that what weird stuff has gone into space well I'll tell you what jamie let's let's you you give us the, uh, you give us a more a better rundown next week yeah i'll do it next week and and in the meantime what can the spodcats do well i tell you what they can do they can head over to itunes and if you've enjoyed our ramblings why not give us a, a review I mean, if it's five stars, then thanks. Uh, You could also subscribe to this podcast. But what I'd love you to do is to go over to interplanetary.org.uk and check out our social media. Maybe get in touch. Have you got a question? Have you got someone you'd like us to interview? Uh, Or have you just got a complaint about one of Matt's impressions? (laughs) Uh, Get in touch. We love hearing from you. And we'd like to thank... Who do we really want to thank, Matt, more than anyone? We can't thank our Skyland Patreons more. They are legends. Kings and Queen. The mega Spodcats. The Spodcats that if I was a, a little old lady collecting cats, these these are my cats. They are the rings around my satin heart. Oh, that's beautiful. So How'd you like that? We have Bob Hodges. Legend. Kaylee. Kaylee is such a legend. Karel Sim. I've always liked Karel. The mega, mega Julio Abreu.
my heart it dust throb. Darren Fuchs. Showing. Legend. Justin Roberts. Just in time because you're a legend. John Benack. The incredible John Benack. Anthony Peggs. Big Peggers. Yes. Matt Gilliland. Oh, what can we say about Matt G? Incredible. Uh, what what can't you say? And that's everyone, that's that's such a geographical spread. We've got that people is in a Chicago. Big here we got people in Australia, France, Estonia. Ah. Oh, Do you want makes... to join this uh esteemed team? Where can they head, Matt? They can head to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. The way forward. And join all 57 of the spodcats that await you there. It's incredible scenes. So thank you, everyone. And I just think I'd like to wish you have a, have a good weekend. And if you want to read more about Halo Drive, then it's in JBIS this month, the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. So why not join the British Interplanetary Society and get JBIS or Spaceflight? Our Dave, David Baker does Spaceflight, and JBIS is full of articles, peer-reviewed articles like the Halo Drive. And, uh, yes, David Kipping's uh, depart- uh, from the Department of Astronomy, Columbia University, is in this month's BIS. It is an incredible call. Yeah. So, yes, join the British Interplanetary Society if you're interested in space. The oldest running space advocacy society in the world. Thank you very much, Spodcats. Have a good weekend. See you next week. See you soon, and uh, don't forget to use your gravity assist when at the bar this evening. Goodbye. Bye-bye.